Good morning again. Open your Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. And I want to apologize. That's a typo on that slide. It should be verse 6 through 24, not verse 4 through 24. So a little couple of verses down. And, of course, the title is Swimming Upstream. You'll see a picture of Pacific salmon. And they hatch in very fast-moving streams and rivers. And once they hatch, they spend their very early life around the nest. But then as they grow, they begin to swim downstream. And they go downstream in the very fast-moving rivers, and they keep going and going until they finally reach the Pacific Ocean. And when they become adults, guess what they do? They turn around and go right back. They're a 1,000 miles from where they started. It's time to go back, and it's all upstream. Now, the ocean's not too bad to deal with. You have tides and currents, but it's a lot harder to swim upstream in the river. Now, as you start off, the rivers are pretty good size, but as they get closer to where they started, the rivers get smaller, and the water gets faster, and there's more dangers. Uh, in this picture, you can imagine a, a grizzly bear or a black bear sitting there on the edge, wanting them to jump up over those falls so they could have their dinner. So they have a lot of things against them. They're swimming upstream. Tons and tons of water are opposed to them. And everything else in the stream is going the opposite way. If you're trying to swim upstream in a river or swim against a tide, when I was stationed in Hawaii in the Navy, they always warned us about the riptide. As the waves come in the shore and the shore goes like this, when they go back out, that pool can be so great that you can't swim against it. And I've been in there. It's hard. When that riptide, it starts pulling you out to sea. It'll probably pull you right out to sea before you know it. And they're, they're swimmer. And they're swimming, and they're, they're swimming against that hard stream, and everything looks impossible. There's rocks. There's these falls to deal with. How are they going to get there? And the farther they get, they go, and the closer they get to home, the harder it becomes. Now, let me ask you this. You're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with our text? Here it comes. Do you ever feel like your Christian life is exactly like that, constantly swimming upstream? Everything opposing you. You're trying to get up the falls or rocks or something to grab you. Take something away from you. Do you feel like your walk has become that way? And let me tell you, perhaps that's exactly what we find the remnant feeling today as we look into our text. They responded with discernment the first time opposition came. They, they responded with discernment. They dealt with it right away. And they responded with determination to get the job done no matter what. And we find in our passage today the remnant is facing another barrage of continual opposition. They're like that salmon on the home stretch of swimming upstream. They're facing waterfall after waterfall after waterfall. And finally, some of them just don't make it. They, they just the, the salmon, not all of them get back. 
And just like that, some of the, that the, was find the remnant just kind of walking away. Did they really give up? Did they leave because of fear for their life? And I'm going to connect the dots later, but I just kind of whet your appetite with this statement. We find ourselves in somewhat of a similar situation. Okay, we want to be safe and secure and not anyone sick. But as time is rolling on, and you know the news well as I, when is it a time to stand up and say, no, we need to do this because God commands it rather than listening to the state? This is something to think about. That's something I've wrestled with this entire week with this passage. So let's look at our text, starting in verse 6 of, of Ezra chapter 4. Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Anaxerxes, Bishlam, Miradoth, Tavel, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rehom, the commander of Simshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehom, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of his colleagues, the judges and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Eric, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, and the Amlites, and the rest of the nations, which the great armed once apart, departed and settled in the city of Samaria, Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. Now, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Arxerxes, your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from who you come to us at Jerusalem, they are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and in finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to, you, to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. And it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we are in service of the palace and it's not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king. So that the search may be made in the record books of your fathers. And you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city and damaging to the kings and provinces. And that they have incited revolt within it the past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Then the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria, and the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Listen very carefully his his response. Peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me and a search has been made and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days that rebellion and revolt have perpetrated in it. That mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river and that tribute, custom and toll were paid to them. So now issue decree to make these men stop work that the city may not be rebuilt until decree is issued by me. Be aware of being negligent in carrying out this matter, 
Why, why should damage increase to the determinant of the kings? Then as soon as a copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. Then the work of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. A lot going on in our passage. They have opposition. This is now the second time. Remember they told the first time, you're our enemies, we have nothing to do with you. Now the same people have gathered together and they've written a letter. What I want to talk about now is the persistence of their opposition and the persistence of our opposition. Because we all have opposition, by the way. You have opposition against you as individuals, as Christians, as believers in Christ. We also have opposition as a church. Now, if you go back to verse 5, there are four kings listed they faced opposition under. Now, Cyrus commanded them to leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem. And all the events that have happened so far have happened under his reign. And it was under his reign the first set of opposition began. Then you have King Darius. Now, he's mentioned in the book of Daniel, but opposition continued under his reign. Hazarus. Opposition continued by the way he would become Esther's husband. And Xerxes became king by murdering his brother. Now, this is a person mentioned in our text. He ruled from 464 to 423 B.C., and that includes the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, very important for us to realize that underneath his first half of his reign, there was a great Egyptian revolt that was supported by the Greeks. And that was a major challenge to Persian control in the eastern Mediterranean. And that caused Xerxes to listen very carefully to charges of sedition. So you see what's happening? The opposition knew this. They knew about the first half of his reign and how badly it went for him. So now when they're talking about another city rising up, his ears are going to perk up and say, wait a second, I need to do something about this and do something about it now. Verse 5 states that the opposition frustrated their counsel. It made them ineffective, unproductive, of hopeless. Now remember, this was not a short-term opposition. It went on day after day. It could get you to the point where you want to give up. So you had the first part of opposition. If you go back and look some weeks ago when you were back in Ezra, they come up, we will help you, and the text says, no, your enemies and say, no, we need your help. But the opposition didn't give up, did they? Now they come back and they're doing this. And it's going on day after day after day. When you live in opposition like that, it will get you to the point where you just want to give up. And that's exactly what the opposition wants them to do. And that's what they desire to happen, to make them stop. Now, how does verse 6, look at your text. How does the opposition attack the remnant? Did they come with them with swords? Did they physically attack them? No, because when you physically attack somebody or a group of people, that will usually strengthen their will to fight against you. No, they, they wanted to weaken it. So it became a legal, it became a legal adversary, a legal opponent against them. What I mean by that, they're standing before the king. 
and then making accusations to the king about them. We have, a, we have a person that stands before our king every day, constantly throwing accusations against us. And his goal is to make us ineffective. And he's extremely persistent. He can't take our salvation, but he can take our witness. He can render us ineffective. Keep us from doing what God wants us to do. And we must stand against the persistence of our opposition. Very persistent. You see it in the text here, and you know it in your own lives. We have an opponent, an enemy that's very persistent in presenting opposition to us as individual believers and as a church. Which takes us now to verses 8 through 10, the pervasiveness of our opponent. And this is the beginning of the letter in verse 8, written by a couple of accusers against the remnant, addressed to the king during the time the city was being rebuilt. And as representative of all the opposing accusations they faced, even in the days of Cyrus, we were actually in our timeline. So the verse 8 gives us the to and from part of the letter. Verse 9, everyone who signed it. Everyone who endorsed Rehum and Shemsai's letter. It's a list of the remnant's opposition, a list of their accusers. And look how pervasive it is. Their opposition is coming from all sides and all directions. Everybody signed off on this thing. This is what's going on. We agree they need to stop. It reminds me of the Pacific salmon. If it's not the water, it's the rocks. If it's not the rocks, it's the waterfalls. And look at verse 9. Every one of those names represents a nationality in Jerusalem. And they only had one thing in common, an enemy, which was the Jews. So all these nationalities are pulling together to stop them from rebuilding. Now, interesting enough, in the letter, it's talking about the walls, not the temple. And I'm not going to bore you with all the things that biblical scholars talk about, but this is the rebuilding of the temple and the city. Perhaps this is the first time when Nehemiah first hears about what's going on in Jerusalem. But they need to stop it, and they, they, they want to stop them from rebuilding. And do you ever feel like you have everything stacked against you? you ever feel like everybody... I mean, look, at you have all these nationalities in Jerusalem coming together to face the, their one enemy, the Jews, to stop them. Have you ever felt like the world is just coming after you? Like everything, you ever had one of those days when nothing could go right? And you just feel like everything is coming against you? Think about the godly woman who lives out her testimony for her husband every day of their med, marriage. He comes against her faith. Her kids come against her faith. Her life is filled with opposition. Think about our young people going to school. Every day in the hallways, their faith is laughed at, is scoffed at, and ridiculed by all the cool kids. Their faith is questioned and undermined by secular curriculum. And when they get home, their faith may be belittled or scorned because they have unbelieving parents or step-parents or siblings there. And here's the sad truth. And when they attend church sometimes, they're looked down on because they don't act, quote, the right way in the quote. Opposition. And Christians 
today are opposed on every side, theologically, politically, educationally and economically. Opposed by the rich, the middle class and the poor, by all political parties, by all races, by all ages and by all classes. Our opposition is pervasive, but even so, we must stand. Stand against the persistence and pervasiveness of our opposition. Now we come to verses 11 through 16. The persuasiveness of our opposition. Now we're moving into the main body of the letter. It lays out the case of the accusers against the remnant. And it does it in four parts, each of them a lie and a separate accusation. Look at verse 12. They're rebuilding their rebellious and evil, or some translations, wicked city. It's falsely stating the record of the remnant being rebellious, evil, and wicked, really sticking to the intent of what they're doing. And look what they say next. If that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. Once again, falsely stating the remnant's intentions. And three different words are used there for taxes. A monetary tax, a payment in kind like oil, grain, or et cetera, and a duty tax. Now, remember what we found about Artaxerxes' first reign that was troubled by a lot of revolts. And after that costly campaign with the Greeks, he couldn't stand by and let the empire lose money. And opposition played on the fears of the king that he might lose revenue. There were a number of rebellions in the West. And this was Rao's concern for the king, causing him to take action. Once again, they're talking to him, hey, you're going to lose all this money. And you know how much other campaign cost, king, didn't you? And look at their letter. Hey, we have your best interests in mind here, king. You're about to lose a lot of money. We know you can't sit back and let that happen. And look what they say here. Because we are in service of the palace. Literally, that is, we have eaten the salt of the palace. What that means, salt, salt was used to seal covenants. Therefore, that is implying loyalty. There is a pretense of loyalty and concern for the king's honor is used, but no mention of their true motives or intentions. They're basically kind of, how can I put it correctly, smooching up to the king. We have your best interests at heart. We want to see this. We're in service to you. We care. And there's no mention of Cyrus' decree because they tell him to go back and make a search of the records, right? Well, King Cyrus had commanded them to leave in the first place to go back to Jerusalem. They make another statement. If it's finished, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. And they're going to take over everything. You won't have nothing left. They'll take over the entire kingdom. Now, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's very persuasive. I mean, these small band of Jews will not pose a serious threat to King Artaxerxes. But because of prior troubles in the rest, Syria and Palestine and Egypt, he would have been sensitive to any signs of unrest. So they know all this. Can you see what's building? 
playing off the fears of the king, telling him what's going to happen, not really telling him the truth or the intent of what the people are doing in order to stop them from rebuilding Jerusalem and specifically the temple. And they're lying. And our position is not afraid to lie about us. That shouldn't surprise us. Satan, our chief opposition, stands before the throne accusing us. He lies about us before God himself. Now, the first time you can see that happening is with Job. Well, there's accusation that Satan makes against Job with God. Now, Job doesn't know this this, uh, conversation took place. But basically, God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan makes the accusation. The only reason he's praising you and serving you is because you've blessed him. Take all that away or curse you and die. No, he won't. So he gives permission, takes all his stuff away. Job loses everything. He doesn't, he doesn't stop serving God. And so finally, Satan goes back to God and God says, I'll tell you what, you can do everything you want to him, but don't take his life. And yet Job, when it's all said and done, continues to serve God. In fact, his wife tells him, won't you just curse God and die? Interesting enough, at the end of the book, Job is restored. Everything comes back with no mention of his wife. I don't know what that means. Can't argue from silence. But the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, verses 10 and through 11, talks about lying or throwing accusations to God about us. And here's some accusations and lies that people tell us about us here. Have you heard these? Christians are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. I live better than most of those church people do. How about this one? All the church wants is your money. Can I just make this statement real fast? God doesn't need your money. He doesn't want your money. What he's after is your heart. How many times have you heard accusations like that? So our opposition is persistent, pervasive, and persuasive. But still we must stand. And now we come to the impediments of our opposition in verses 17 through 24, or obstacles. Now, the king's response, he fell for the lies, resulting in giving a command that all work in Jerusalem was to cease. That gave the opposition the authority they need to force the remnant to stop. And we see in verse 23, they compelled them by force. The New King James says, the force of arms made them Cease. It's interesting, you go back to verse 17 in that response of the king, you see the letter peace. But later in the letter, he says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, do whatever is necessary to carry this out. Interesting, he starts with peace, but then he leaves that bottom open. So he knows violence is going to happen. Our opposition will continue to place obstacles in the way of our faith. Roblocks of public worship, evangelism, preaching, and practicing our faith. These kind of impediments are increasing every day in our nation. However, the impediments we face on a daily basis are usually more simple. What stops us from really public worship, really? I mean, what stops us from really worshiping God? Our desire and our pride. What really stops us from evangelism? Really going out there, telling people about the Lord? Not just by words, but also by deeds. Discomfort. 
Our main obstacle or impediment to preaching and practicing our faith is laziness, complacency, and comfort. Now, before I go any further, I want to make something clear. Some scholars will say, well, the, the remnant was like the fish, the salmon. They just, they just gave up and walked away. Because obviously they showed up by force. Now, what that means, I don't know. They, they must have showed up on horseback and had swords and spears. They, so did they just give up? Did they fear for their lives and their children? Or should they stood there and face the opposition and stand against the opposition? And this is where my heart begins to wrestle. Because I see us in this time and what we're going through now as a country. Now, I'm all for keeping people safe and keeping them healthy. But I see something happening that in order, let me put it this way, a call to our safety and security and our health is going to lead to a lot of our liberties and rights be taken away. At what point do you sacrifice freedom in order to have safety and security is the way of putting it. Moses, I don't have an answer for that question. And I look at this text and I study the background behind it and I find it just another way how God's word is so applicable today as it was written back then. You got to realize these people, they left and they're rebuilding. And this opposition, the first opposition came there. They're fighting against it. It's not this one time they showed up and say, hey, we want to help. I'm sure when they told them, uh, turned them down, it was a constant day by day thing. This is probably me harassing them. And then now this letter going to the king. And I look at us today. Are we being harassed this little by little? Or what's the next step? No. Are they going to tell us we can't gather? You know, where, where do you draw that line is what I'm bringing out. But instead of you leaving you hanging like that, I, I want to say this. How can we stand against opposition that comes against us? How can we stand the opposition that would come against us as a church? The way we do that is by being strong in the Lord and be relying on his power, on, on the power of his might. That is the only way we can stand against the wiles of our opposition. And we need to begin every day by putting on the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 17. The greatest lie the devil ever put out and people believe is that he doesn't exist. Well, he exists and he has one mission to destroy you and your family. And everything about you. And if you're in a position of leadership, he even got a bigger target on your back because he knows if he can take you down, five or ten might go with you. And I'm telling you, in the day in which we find ourselves, this is more important every day that we put on that armor of God. See, the remnant walked away. We find the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius. About 16 years. 
Can you imagine some of them say, that's it, I give up, I can't handle it, I quit. I mean, being under that day-by-day opposition, that's it, I, I've given enough. After all, had God brought them through, after all his faithfulness, how he's preserved them, provided for them, over and over again, some of them just quit, surrendered. But you know what? They're right. They couldn't handle the opposition. And neither can you and I, neither can we as a church. The one day we think we can stand the opposition is the day we'll be defeated. If we're headed in the direction that we're supposed to be, we are going to face opposition. And the closer we get to where we're supposed to be, the tougher the opposition will become. Think about this for a second. Now, I'm not going to make any conclusions. I'm just throwing something for you to think about. What was going on before COVID-19 in this church? What did you see happening? Our attendance was growing. We had people joining. People want, and you know what you guys want to do? You wanted to have, I heard this time and time again, we need to have some fellowship. We want to have some meals together. We want to spend some time with each other. And you saw it happening. What happened after COVID-19? All that came to a screeching halt. Hmm. I wonder if that just happened or if that was more of a strategic plan. It's just something to think about. We're heading in the way that God wants us to be. Now, either we can turn away from the opposition and just have come a, a calm, peaceful life, if you will, or we can face it and strive to accomplish what God has for us. And if we choose to do that, our determination is not what's going to keep us standing. Our determination to get something done is not what we need. What we have to do is trust God and rely on his power. You know what that means? It means you get on your knees. And that's oxymoron to a lot of us because kneeling, as I show here, this is a physical act of submission. This is the this is the thing that that a that a king would never do to a conquering king. It was humiliating for a king to bow to another king and say, "Yes, you've defeated me. Now I'm submitting to your authority." But when we go to our knees as believers, that's when we become the strongest. You know what we're saying, God? I can't do it myself. I have no idea what to do here. So I'm submitting to your authority and your power and your might. I'm relying completely on you. You tell me what you want and I'll do it. Notice the posture. Kneeling. Palms up. Complete surrender. And that's what it's going to take as we stand against our opposition. If we rely on only our physical, mental determination, nothing with God, just relying on ourselves, we'll be just like that remnant, standing there with a cracked slab where the temple was going to be built and an empty altar. They did, they did pour the foundation, remember that? And now there it is, just sitting there. How many churches in America started a great project of building and they got to pour the slab, but then there was too much infighting and bike biting, and the church split, and nothing became of it. How many houses of worship in our country? Beautiful, beautiful houses of worship. 
that at one point were running 2,000, 3,000 people because over time, maybe the community changed. They didn't reach out to the community as it changed around them. Maybe they didn't practice evangelism very much. They didn't have younger people coming in. More people just went home, and as people passed away, no one was there to pick up the mantle. And over time, it just dwindled, and now it's not there. There's a great church. was a great church right outside Fort Worth. Huge church in its time. It got to the point, brothers and sisters, there was only a handful of them. They couldn't pay to keep the lights turned on. And you think, how can that happen? And I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you again, we have opposition. We have an enemy that doesn't want us to do a thing. Exactly what the remnant faced back then. Just want to give up and throw up our hands. The other thing about our enemy, long for staying our own ground, you know, doing the uh, status quo, if you will, doesn't mind that. But as soon as we step out there, like the book of Colossians, to reach into the darkness and pull people into his marvelous light. We're, we're stepping on his ground, pulling people out. Literally from the pit of hell into God's marvelous truth and life. That's when the enemy is going to get mad at us and he's going to strike out the opposition. See, the only thing that will allow us to stand is if we stand with the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we face our opposition in the power of his might. So I, I come with this question in conclusion. Are you ready to face all the opposition that's coming our way, or has come our way, or is coming our way? Are you ready to look at some of the challenges that we're going to have in the coming days? Are you ready to face those head on? Ready to get to work? And this speaks to me in huge volumes. Know what we need to do? Quit looking at the problem or challenge and keep our eyes focused on him. That's the first important step. I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know what kind of opposition you're facing. I don't know what kind of problems you're having. This pandemic is causing all sorts of disruptions, all sorts of problems. And those are only going to get worse as, as it draws out even more and more. And you know what? We have people looking to us. See how we're going to respond. Are we going to stand? Are we going to stand on the truth? Are we going to waver? And when the rubber really hits the road, are we going to stand strong? Remember, when persecution hits, I'm not talking about being called a Bible thumper or a Jesus freak like here in the States. I'm talking about real persecution. People going to jail, people losing their lives, people losing their occupations, people losing their houses. That's happening around the world right now as I speak. When that hits, three things always happen. Number one, some people deny their faith. They simply walk away. No. Second thing will happen, people will compromise their faith. Well, that's not really what the Bible means. It means this. Third, some people will grow stronger and stand firm in their faith. 
That's the reason why every time this world has tried to step out Christianity, it's always thrived because you can't stomp it out. It spreads like wildfire because people become so strong in their faith. And you need to make that decision here and now. Not when you get out there and face it, but now. I'm not asking you to be some super warrior because it comes down to one thing. One thing. This is the most basic thing. Are we as individuals willing and as a church willing to bow our knees and say, God, whatever it is, we will do it. Sometimes that means confessing sin. Dealing with sin in our own lives. Maybe dealing with corporates and some things that the church we say, you know what, we, we've, we've passed some of these things by God and we ask for forgiveness for this. Whatever it is God's asking you to do, I pray that you respond to him right here and right now. Would you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word that, Father, we can pick it up, we can read it, we can study it. We thank you for the men and women who, throughout the centuries, have gone through the the long, laborious duty of translating it accurately for us to read in our native tongue, English. And, Father, we have so many different ones, and we thank you for it. Father, we confess that we don't spend enough time looking at it and studying it. When we have questions, that's the first place we need to turn. And Father, I pray for the men and women gathered in this place with me today, those joining us via Internet, whatever it is that you're leading them to do, whatever that you're working their heart, dear God, I pray that you give them the courage and the boldness to respond and affirm, yes, they will do it. And Father, we cannot do this without you. We can't do it on our determination and our work, our strength. It has to come from you and you alone. Continue to speak to us, O oh God, and continue to mold us in the men and women you've called us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Grace like rain falls down on me. Hallelujah. All my stains are washed away. They're washed away. Amen. Zing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So clearly, hallelujah, grace like rain falls down on me. Hallelujah, all my stains are washed away, they're washed away. Twas grace. That taught 
my heart to fear and grace my fears relieve how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed when we been there in thousand years bright shining as the sun we've no best days to sing your praise than when we first begun Hallelujah, grace like rain falls down on me. Hallelujah, all my stains are washed away. They're washed away. You know, it's okay to have concern of what's going on. You know, what's going on in our country and around the world. But let me remind you of something. This is not our home. We're just passing through. I don't know when he's coming again, but I do know this. We're a day closer today than we were yesterday. So keep that in mind. That no matter what you see on the news, God's in control. He's guiding all history. And one day he's going to call to take us home. But until that day comes, we also be looking around for opportunities to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. What an opportunity. And we have many challenges, but what an opportunity this COVID has presented to us to tell people about the saving power of the gospel. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.